And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing pretty good. That's good to hear. Yeah, how are you? I'm doing alright as well. I burned my thumb from those microwavable dinners. (laughs) Just... A whole adventure here in the Scream Scene household. Yeah. What are we watching today? Well, we are continuing our trend of horror movie sequels today with The Invisible Man Returns mm. from 1940. I don't think this trend is ending anytime soon. You know, speaking as someone alive in the future world of 2018, yes, you are probably right. <laughs> the sequel, of course, um, is our first film... To come out in 1940. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right on the heels of this renaissance of horror in 1939, leading into the 1940s. And one of the big differences in the genre between the original and this film is that in between, uh, the production code started being enforced mm-hmm. in 1934. Yeah. We had a whole special on the production code, so if you want to know what was all in it, Uh, you can go back and check out that special. But I thought I'd take some time out right now to address the fact that there were some revisions to the code made in late 1939. Oh. The first of these um, probably doesn't have a whole lot of impact on the horror genre, but it's sort of interesting, which is that the section on profanity was revised. Uh, Previously, it had said... Pointed profanity, including God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, unless used reverently, hell, SOB, damn, or other profane or vulgar expressions, however used, is forbidden. This was revised to pointed profanity and every other profane or vulgar expression, however used, is forbidden. No approval by the Production Code Administration shall be given to the use of words and phrases in motion pictures, including, but not limited to, the following... And then there are a long list (laughs) of... Words you cannot use. Yeah. The other big revision to the code that does probably have a bigger um, impact on the horror genre, um, even though it's not directly calling out the horror genre, are a series of special regulations on crime in motion pictures that were passed in late 1939. One, details of crime must never be shown, and care should be exercised at all times in discussing such details. Two, action suggestive of wholesale slaughter of human beings, either by criminals in conflict with the police, or as between warring faction of criminals, or in public disorders of any kind, will not be allowed. Three, there must be no suggestion at any time of excessive brutality. Four, Because of the increase in the number of films in which murder is frequently committed, action showing the taking of human life, even in mystery stories, is to be cut to the minimum. These frequent representations of murder tend to lessen audience regard for the sacredness of life. 5. Suicide, as a solution of problems occurring in the development of screen drama, is to be discouraged 
as morally questionable and as bad theater, unless absolutely necessary for the development of the plot. Okay. Six, there must be no display at any time of machine guns, submachine guns, or other weapons generally classified as illegal weapons in the hands of gangsters or other criminals, and there are to be no offstage sounds of the repercussions of these guns. Oh, how the times have changed. Seven, there must be no new, unique, or trick methods shown for concealing guns. Eight, the flaunting of weapons by gangsters or other criminals will not be allowed. Nine, all discussions and dialogue on the part of gangsters regarding guns should be cut to the minimum. Ten, there must be no scenes at any time showing law enforcement officers dying at the hands of criminals. This includes private detectives and guards for banks, motor trucks, etc. Eleven, with reference to the crime of kidnapping or illegal abduction, such stories are acceptable under the code only when the kidnapping or abduction is A, not the main theme of the story, B, the person kidnapped is not a child, C, there are no details of the crime of kidnapping, D, no profit accrues to the abductors or kidnappers, and E, where the kidnappers are punished. It is understood and agreed that the word kidnapping uh, is intended to mean abduction or illegal detention in modern times by criminals for ransom. And finally, 12, pictures dealing with criminal activities in which minors participate or to which minors are related shall not be approved if they incite demoralizing imitation on the part of youth. So, I can see how these revisions, or at least the second half of those revisions, can impact horror, but it feels more like a preemptive strike to the popularity of thrillers, and specifically film noir. Yeah, gangster and crime movies, um, which at this point in Hollywood's history were basically evolving from what you might identify just as a crime movie or a gangster movie and into the very specific genre of film noir. Yeah. There is one uh, final change in the code called Special Resolution on Costumes, but I'm not going to go into all the details about it. It basically just says, hey, you know all those rules we had against scantily clad outfits? You can get away with it only if you are depicting, like, authentic native costumes of, like, other cultures in a non-exploitative manner. Mm, okay. So back to The Invisible Man Returns. Obviously, this is a sequel to 1933's The Invisible Man. And he died at the end of that. Yes. So how does he return? Well, I guess that's why we'd be watching. Why the we got to see the movie? That's yeah. <laughs> how you get the butts in the seats, right? Yeah, yeah. Gotta ask these questions. It's been a while since our Invisible Man episode, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Um, can you refresh my memory? He's invisible, and he's a man. Yes. Was there anything else I needed to know? <laughs> our Invisible Man episode is episode forty-three, and it's currently ranked number six on the list. It's very high. Yeah. It's based off of H.G. Wells's novel of the same name that was published in 1897. And kind of the thing that I think is important to note about H.G. Wells is when he was writing science fiction, he always believed that there should be one fantastical, weird element, and then everything that follows should follow logic and reason. Right. So there's one weird thing, everything else should be logical. Right. There's an invisible man, but there isn't an invisible man and ghosts and flying saucers. 
Sure. There's just an invisible man. Yeah. Yeah. In the novel, um, it follows the scientist named Griffin as, in his study of optics, he discovers a way to change the body's refractive index to that of air, so in effect you become invisible. Mm. He succeeds, but can't find a way to turn himself back. And he starts to tend towards violence in order to get his way, to get money to support being invisible, being on the run. Kind of all leading to the question of whether you'd still be a good person and moral if there were no consequences to your actions. Right. So he he steals and does crimes and plans to kill people who double-cross him as no one can stop him. And this is all leading to a reign of terror of the invisible man on the world. In the end, he is seized and killed by a mob. Mm -hmm. That story is fairly well adapted in the movie, The Invisible Man, made in 1933 by James Whale and Universal Studios. Uh, One thing that I think is really neat is um, that's Claude Rains' first movie. Yeah. Yeah, and he doesn't really appear. Appear. (laughs) His debut. It's a voice acting role. Yeah. Well, he's physically doing the stuff. Yeah, he's just all covered up in the bandages and stuff. Um, Before this, he was a character actor on stage, hence why he has such a great fucking voice. (laughs) Uh, And that's kind of why James Whale wanted him. The other big draw of Invisible Man is the special effects. How do they make a man invisible? And that was done by John P. Fulton and his team. Um, They developed a system of wires to move stuff around the set. And then in order to make Claude Rains appear invisible, Claude Rains would wear this velvet black suit underneath his clothes and then have some of his scenes shot on like a black background. So in effect, he his face and body parts weren't exposed to the camera, so he appears invisible, which is like a really cool way to do this before you have like CGI. It's all sure. practical effects, basically. It's uh, optical. Optical effects. Yeah. So it, it's done very well. Also in the film were Gloria Stewart, Henry Travers, and William Harrigan. Like I said, the plot from the film follows fairly closely to the novel. They kind of condense a couple of characters just to make it work and add in this like romantic subplot. But overall, it's a pretty fair adaptation. When we come into the movie, Griffin is already invisible and a little crazed. You know, he's moody, has a very short temper, is arrogant, and he's hoping to find a way of becoming visible again. We find out that the chemicals that he used to turn himself invisible are actually making him crazy, leading him to these violent tendencies. He comes to his co-worker and rival, Dr. Kemp, for help, And by this time, he's already kind of planning a kind of reign of terror, because no one can stop him from doing anything. And he's also kind of not looking to turn back to being visible. Kemp turns Griffin over to the police, leading us on a bit of a manhunt, while Griffin also commits acts of domestic terrorism, finds and kills Kemp, and eventually, thanks to some fresh snowfall to see his footprints, Griffin is caught shot, and returns to being visible when dead. Mm -hmm. 
Out of all the things that we talked about from the film and our episode on it, we obviously praised Claude Rains. Um, there's no way not to. You brought up the point of how Invisible Man is like seven years before the Joker appears in Batman comics. Yeah. And the idea of like a charming, maniacal, homicidal killer who finds as much enjoyment in pranks as he does in murdering someone, that whole idea is something so new mm-hmm. to, to pop culture. And it kind of comes from The Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. Kind of relating to that is how we found the film very prescient in its depiction of the terrors of anonymity. Yes. And I think that's, that's the title of that episode. You know, we, we kind of linked it to, basically, cybercrime. Um, people who will troll you and prank you, but they're the same kinds of people who might do online acts of terrorism and the dangers of that. Um, but we thought it was interesting how, like, Invisible Man, like, the concept of the internet is not even a thing in 1933, yet its themes or no longer a hypothetical for us today. Yeah, because the whole theme of the story being the connection between anonymity and morality and the way that's become actualized with the internet and hiding behind the anonymity that that gives you. Yeah, so that's kind of why it ranked so high. Because it's a good film, it's a good horror film, but the fact that it still felt very relevant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, has become more relevant over time. Yeah. How much of that original fear, of that original charm of Invisible Man, do you think will be in this sequel? I don't know. I've never seen it. We're going to find out. So when Universal Pictures made uh, the original film version of The Invisible Man, they had signed a multi-picture contract with H.G. Wells. Um, A prudent move, given the time and expense that John P. Fulton would take to devise that movie's groundbreaking special effects. Uh, However, the first horror boom was soon over after the first movie came out, so it kind of lost the studio the opportunity to use their technique to turn more people invisible in movies. But by late 1939, the horror genre was being revitalized by sequels like Son of Frankenstein and Return of Dr. X, so the time to cash in on that multi-picture deal had come. The task of finding a way to continue the story, given the rather definitive ending of the original, (laughs) fell to writers Lester Cole and Kurt Siedmack. Lester Cole was born in 1904 in New York City to a family of Polish Jews. His father was a Marxist union organizer, and Cole was raised a dedicated socialist. In 1933, he co-founded the Writers Guild of America with John Howard Larson and Samuel Ornitz, and in 1934, he joined the American Communist Party. Cole wrote 50 films over the course of his career, but is perhaps best known as one of the Hollywood Ten, those individuals who refused to testify to the House Un-American Activities Commission and were blacklisted from the industry thereafter. Cole was convicted of contempt of Congress and served 10 months in a federal prison. Dang. The movie's other writer was Kurt Siedmack. Born in 1902 in Dresden, Germany, to a Jewish family, he started out writing novels and then invested his early royalties in the film Menschen am Sonntag in 1929, which was co-directed by his brother, 
Robert Mack, and The Black Cat's Edgar G. Ulmer, and was written by American writer Billy Wilder. Kurt continued writing novels, but also started to write screenplays after this point, sometimes adapting his own works. When the Nazis came to power, the Siedmaks were attacked in the press by Josef Goebbels in anti-Semitic tirades. Robert left for Paris until 1939, while Kurt went to England until 1937, after which both brothers ended up in Hollywood. The Invisible Man Returns was Kurt's 20th screenplay, uh, but his fourth since arriving in the United States. Okay. The movie's director was Joe May, born Josef Otto Mandel in Vienna, Austria in 1880. He started out as a director of operettas in Hamburg. Okay. And married actress Mia May, taking her last name. In the 1910s, he began directing films, including a popular series of detective movies, before being called away to fight in World War I. After the war, he started his own production company, owned his own sound stages, and produced successful crime and adventure films, many of which starred his wife Mia. By the end of the 1920s and into the 30s, May had transitioned to more realistic drama films, but with the Nazi rise to power in 1933, he and his wife emigrated to the United States. In Hollywood, he worked on B-movies mainly, uh, but occasionally did A-pictures, such as 1937's Confession. In 1939, he directed the mystery thriller House of Fear, for Universal, which led to his assignment on The Invisible Man Returns. House of Fear sounds like a great title. Yeah. Is it not a horror movie? No, nah, it's just a, a mystery thriller. Your standard murder in an old dark house kind of... Kind of fair? Kind of fair. Okay. Um, great title. Nothing movie. <laughs> the film's cast is headlined by Sir Cedric Hardwick a distinguished English stage actor. He was born in 1893 and would have become a doctor, but failed his exams. He served in World War I and began his stage acting career on the Lyceum Theatre in London. He grew famous as the lead actor in a number of productions of George Bernard Shaw plays, such as Pygmalion, and in 1934 he became the youngest actor yet to be knighted at the age of 41 a record which was later broken, first by Laurence Olivier. In the late 1930s, he began appearing in Hollywood films. Uh, he had been appearing in British films before that, such as The Ghoul in 1933, where he played the lawyer Broughton. Okay. Um, the Ghoul was Boris Karloff, is like this rich guy who's super into the Egyptian occult. Yes. And wants to be buried with this ruby. And yeah. It's a whole, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, when he appeared in that film, he was just Cedric Hardwick, because uh, it was 1933. Now he's Sir, Sir Cedric Hardwick, yes. Um, after coming to Hollywood, he appeared in Les Miserables in 1935. He played Alan Quatermain in King Solomon's Mines in 1937. And he was Frollo in RKO's big-budget remake of The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1939, which featured Charles Lawton as Quasimodo. Right. Second build in the cast, despite playing the title character, was the young actor Vincent Price, just 28 years old at the time of making this movie. Oh man, I'm so excited to see this and to see Vincent Price in this, well, quote-unquote, see. Right. <laughs> 
Vincent Leonard Price Jr. was born in 1911 in St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis, Missouri? I don't know. I think it's St. Louis. Uh, but he was the son of the president of the National Candy Company. <laughs> and he was grandson of the inventor of the tartar cream-based baking powder. Okay, quite a lineage to live up to. Uh, because of being the grandson of this inventor, his family was very wealthy. Yes. In 1933, he graduated... He really had a, a price to his name. <laughs> okay, yep. <laughs> In 1933, he graduated from Yale University with a degree in art history. He taught for a year and then intended to get a master's degree in fine arts from the University of London. Uh, but while attending that school, he became drawn to the theater and acting um, and joined Orson Welles' Mercury Theater Stage Acting Company in 1935. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. Oh, that's great. His first big breakthrough on stage was in a play called Victoria Regina in 1936, uh, where he played Prince Albert. He married his first wife, actress Edith Barrett, in 1938, with whom he had one son, Vincent Barrett Price. Uh, he was bisexual and had casual sexual relationships with men throughout his life. In 1938, he also made his film debut in Roland V. Lee's Service Deluxe, a comedy. In 1939, he would appear in two historical dramas, Michael Curtiz's Private Life of Elizabeth and Essex and Roland V. Lee's Tower of London. The Invisible Man Returns would be Price's fourth film, though, like Claude Rains before him, he would spend most of the movie as a disembodied voice. But he has the voice for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The female lead of the movie's cast is Nan Gray, a 21-year-old contract actress with Universal, who we last saw at age 18 as Countess Seleska's doomed art model in Dracula's Daughter. Okay. Good for her. Mm -hmm. Getting another role. Uh, in the role of the brother of Griffin from the original Invisible Man is actor John Sutton. I'm not sure whether he's playing Travis or Justin, but we will find out. <laughs> Other familiar faces in the cast uh, may include Forrester Harvey, who had appeared as the owner of the inn in the original Invisible Man movie, as well as a 37-year-old Alan Napier in a small role. Uh, Napier was a distinguished 10-year veteran of West End London stage at this time, but is best known to audiences today for his role as Alfred in the 1960s Batman television series. Yeah. The Invisible Man Returns was released on January 12th, 1940. It had cost Universal Pictures $281,743, uh, running about ten grand over budget, uh, but it made $815,100 uh, at the box office. Uh, and also earned critical success. Nice. So, did fairly well for itself. Exactly. Uh, in response to this success, the studio re-engaged much of the same cast and crew uh, for its 1940 adaptation of the gothic drama The House of the Seven Gables, uh, based on the novel by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and also expanded its invisible 
franchise <laughs> into the screwball comedy genre with the spin-off film The Invisible Woman later in 1940. All right. John P. Fulton would receive an Academy Award nomination for his special effects work for this film, uh, but would lose out to The Thief of Baghdad, uh, the movie which popularized the blue screen technique. Okay. So how are we watching this movie? Well, The Invisible Man Returns is available on DVD and Blu-ray as part of The Invisible Man Legacy Collection from Universal Home Video. So that is how we are watching this movie. All right. Well, folks, if you would like to check out the other episodes that we've kind of mentioned today, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You are going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Invisible Man Returns from 1940. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Invisible Man Returns from 1940, directed by Joe May. Ben, what did you think? This was good. Yeah, it was a fun time. Yep. Special effects were great, as always. Yeah. Can always expect a good show with John Fulton on the job. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Do you want to tell us what it was about? For sure. So, Sir Jeffrey Radcliffe has been convicted of the murder of his brother, Michael. The Radcliffes are a wealthy family in England. They own a coal mine, and everyone's very upset about this conviction because everyone's pretty convinced that Sir Jeffrey did not do it, Uh, especially his close friends, uh, Helen, his girlfriend, Richard Cobb, uh, who's played by Sir Cedric Hardwick, and his scientist buddy, Dr. Frank Griffin, who just so happens to be the younger brother of Claude Rains's character from the original Invisible Man. So, it's nice when you have a friend who knows how to make people invisible when you're about to be hanged for murder, <laughs> uh, because this enables Jeffrey to vanish from his cell. Uh, obviously, the police are on the case, and that's how we get introduced to Inspector Sampson of Scotland Yard. He's great. He's played by Cecil Calloway, and he's the smartest police officer in a horror movie thus far, (laughs) because he looks at the situation, okay, we have a cell, we have a disappeared prisoner, and he left all his clothes behind, huh, he's friends with the younger brother of the Invisible Man, because I'm in a universe where the Invisible Man is real, because I'm in a sequel to the Invisible Man, (laughs) ergo, he's invisible. Like, he just figures that out. There's none of this, like, oh, what? Vampires aren't real? And it's like, but this is a sequel to Dracula. Anyways, so he immediately goes after Dr. Griffin, and, of course, Griffin denies everything, but this is, in fact, what has happened. Uh, Jeffrey has been turned into an Invisible Man, Um, And he's on the run. And he is well aware that the formula for turning you invisible will also make you insane. Side note, 
in the original movie, the drug for invisibility was called monocaine, and in this movie it's called duocaine, and I don't know if that's a continuity error or like a weird joke, because that would be like one cane, two cane, right? Like mono duo. And it's a sequel? Yeah, I don't know what's going on with that, but it, <laughs> it definitely was a thing I noticed. Anyways, the, he's well aware that the formula turns you insane, but Dr. Frank Griffin is working on the antidote as we speak. Wait a minute, you didn't figure out the antidote before this plan? You've had nine years, guy. Anyways. <laughs> but the plan is to not let Jeffrey turn insane. Jeffrey realizes that being invisible and on the run basically gives him the perfect opportunity to figure out who set him up for murder. It's a bit of a Harrison Ford fugitive Oh, Yeah, if Harrison Ford had been invisible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he <laughs> starts by investigating Willie Spears, the alcoholic superintendent at the mine, who's played by Alan Napier. And by putting the fear of Satan into <laughs> Spears... Um, he manages to get Spears to confess that Richard killed Michael so that he could frame Jeffrey for it to get both of them out of the way so that he could take over the mine because he's like a distant cousin or something. And also basically so that he could put the moves on Helen. Uh, it's, it's very clear that Richard has got something going on for Helen. Um, and that Spears saw Richard do it and got the superintendent job as a reward for looking the other way and not telling anyone. Uh, so Jeffrey puts a noose around Spears' neck and gags him and then leaves him on top of like a chair for several days, apparently, while he goes and confronts... I think it's only one day. Sure. While he goes and confronts Richard. The police, meanwhile, have closed in on the estate, uh, and there's sort of a whole sequence where they're pretty convinced... Jeffrey's in the house because he is in the house, and Jeffrey has to figure out a way to get out of the house. He meets up with Helen and Frank, and it's clear that the duo cane has done its work, and he's gone totally insane. Uh, you know, I want to take over the world levels of insane. Maniacal laughter. Right. Uh, Frank tries to sedate him. Frank had made a promise to, like, restrain Jeffrey, if it ever got to this point. But Jeffrey escapes, takes Richard hostage, uh, and takes him back to the mine. They go to where he's left Willie Spears uh, hanging for the last couple days and um, lays his cards on the table. Richard manages to get a mild leg up on Jeffrey by turning the lights off in the room so that no one can see anyone. And also Richard shoots Willie so that no one can talk. He kicks the chair, so Willie hangs. Oh, okay. I must be remembering that wrong. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's gruesome. That's how he gets to the lights to turn off the lights. Right. I think I'm remembering another occasion where Richard freaked out and just started shooting everybody. Yeah, he did do that. Yeah, okay, sorry. Just, just like, you're invisible. You think I killed your brother? Fuck! Bang, 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 just everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But... Yeah, so Richard kills Willie and fights with Jeffrey, and this fight sort of spills out into the rest of the mine, goes through the whole mine practically until the two of them have been cornered by police. Richard dies, and Jeffrey is shot 
uh, quite badly by the police, but he manages to slip away. Richard does live long enough to confess to murdering Michael. Right. So now the police know that Jeffrey's been innocent this whole time, other than, you know, all the crimes he's committed since he turned invisible. Um, Mm -hmm. So they're out looking for him. Jeffrey ends up returning uh, to the mine because he's dying. And Frank rushes to figure out, you know, how to save him. He gives him uh, a blood transfusion because he's lost a lot of blood from the bullet wound. And he's rushing to try and figure out what the antidote is. All the antidotes he's tried on his guinea pigs so far have, you know, if they did work to restore visibility, also killed the guinea pigs. So it's not great. But then it turns out that all Jeffrey needed was the blood transfusion. Which I guess kind of makes sense, because if, like, the way the drug works is it's ejected into your blood, like, I guess new blood would fix, except that's not how blood works. Anyways... (laughs) So, the new blood fixes him, restores him to visibility, and since he was innocent all along, and he's no longer dying, he gets to have a happy ending with Helen, as opposed to how the original Invisible Man ended. The end. Thank you for explaining the beginning part of the film, because I found it very difficult to follow what was going on. The movie starts, like, in medias res, so Michael's already dead, and Jeffrey's already been convicted, and he's already about to be hanged, and all of these people are just standing around talking about it and being like, oh, we need to get a reprieve, blah, blah, blah. And you really You're don't... You're like, who? Why, why do they need a reprieve? What did they do? Yeah, all the characters are there, but you really don't quite understand what's going on until you've been watching the movie for a while and, like, have gotten to know who everyone is. Um, it's a little bit like coming in to see the season finale of a soap opera without having seen any other episode. Well, the thing about it is that there's two, there's two movies happening here. Yeah. So in some ways, this movie is a repeat of the original movie because the basic arc of like guy turns invisible, he goes into hiding, he starts to go mad, he becomes a fugitive, the cops are after him, they finally corner him and then he's lying on a hospital bed and turns visible again with his girlfriend nearby. Like, it's all very similar, and and the way that he goes mad is very similar, too. And a lot of the even um, special effects moments, like, harken back to moments in the original. Mm -hmm. But what makes it different from the original is it's been laid on top of this framed-for-murder plot line. Now, I will give the movie some respect in the fact that it chooses to start the story when becoming invisible enters into the story because that's what we as the audience are here to see. If I were to continue your soap opera metaphor, though, it's like there has been this soap opera going on with these characters up till now, and we're just coming in for the one episode of the show that involves invisibility. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Because, yeah. yeah, that the other plot, the Frame for Murder plot... You know, you, if that was the focus of the movie, you would have started the story earlier along. Like, we never even see Michael. There's no actor who plays Michael, you yeah. know, despite him being, like, a key plot element. I think part of the reason why they structured it this way was so they could have that similar feeling of you don't see the Invisible Man until... Until the very end. The yeah. end. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, young Vincent Price. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's he's shockingly young in this movie. Like, 
I mean, I but said... But if you squint, you can still kind of see Egghead there, you know? For sure. Um, I just don't think, like, I've ever seen him in anything this young. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I said at the top of the show that he's only 28 in this, but it really made me realize, like, oh, yeah, I've really only seen middle-aged Vincent Price. Yeah. Vincent Price is very good. Yeah. He doesn't have the same kind of um, maniacal gravelly, dangerous voice that Claude Rains. Yeah, he's not as good as Rains was. Yeah, but he, I mean, if you can't get Claude Rains, get Vincent Price. Yeah, he's a very... He's he's very good. He's not as good, but that he's still very, very good. He's a very appropriate follow-up choice. What I thought was sort of interesting about his performance is that he's he's surprisingly low-key in it compared to his later horror roles. Um particularly at the beginning of the movie. Like, he's not the Vincent Price that has sort of solidified itself in, like, pop culture Mm -hmm. consciousness yet Mm -hmm. as an actor. And, you know, he's not going over the top campy in this role, really, especially at the beginning. So he's so low-key in the beginning, you're like, oh, is that Vincent Price? I don't recognize him, because he's not doing, like, the Vincent Price voice that you'd expect, given that he's just a voice for so much of the movie. Yeah. He really only ramps up his intensity as Jeffrey gets more and more insane. And, you know, when he reaches that peak of insanity, you're going, okay, yeah, this is Vincent Price. But even then, I don't think it really ever reaches what you might call, like, peak price. You know what I mean? Yeah, you you don't hear that, you know, voice that comes in the middle of Michael Jackson's thriller. Yeah. Kind of Vincent Price. Yeah. Um, part of that is probably because we're seeing him so young. Yes. You know, I get the feeling that Vincent Price, especially towards the later part of his career, was playing Vincent Price yeah, more it, than other characters. For sure. Like like a lot of actors who have a long career, he eventually developed a persona, and then he's playing that persona, and he doesn't have that persona yet, so he's just playing a role here. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of cool to see, because then any time that I've seen him or heard him in voice acting roles, it's been more towards that persona. What I did think was interesting is um, we talked in the first Invisible Man episode how the film still held Griffin responsible for the crimes and murders that he did despite him going insane. Mm -hmm. Despite the plot device of, you know, there's like an excuse. Mm -hmm. In this film... No murders happen at the hands of Jeffrey. Yeah. Even when he's, like, struggling and fighting with Richard, he gets shot and and thrown off of Richard before Richard falls to his death. Yeah, it's it's an accident that kills Richard. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, that's the biggest thing I noticed about this movie, is that the violence and the menace have been significantly toned down. Even when he is menacing, showing that he's dangerous, and showing that he means to do harm, a lot of the scenes where he's showing that, it's in, it's when he's talking about the people who have framed him. Yes, exactly. You know, even when he gets to a take-over-the-world-level maniacalness, maniacness? Maniacism? Anyways... When he gets to that point, his actual acts of violence are limited solely to Spears and Richard. Solely mm-hmm. at, you know, getting back at these people who clearly deserve it. 
right? Yeah. Which, um... Which is very clearly, this is, like, this is some code stuff. We're seeing the influence of the code here. Definitely. I also saw, like, similar beats it, um, in this film from The Walking Dead. Uh, I mean, yes, in that it's adopting the same get-around-the-code tactic of make the monster someone who's out for revenge and make the victims people who deserve getting got. But the idea of, like, not actually doing murdering or anything like that. I feel like every episode I bring up Walking Dead, and that's just because it's a really good film. But um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is the is how the film, like, steps around and makes a point of making it so Jeffrey doesn't do violence. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I, I disagree in making a direct comparison because the tone of the two films is very different in the sense that in The Walking Dead, Boris Karloff's character is an avenging angel of the Lord, and he doesn't (laughs) kill anyone because God does it for him. Whereas in The Invisible Man Returns, Jeffrey is still, like, villainous and dangerous and, you know, comes off as a Batman villain from time to time. It's just that, like, circumstances kind of happen so that, like, Richard kills Spears and then falls to his... Like, it's just very circumstantial instead of that same feeling of, like, oh, they've maneuvered themselves into causing their own demise, which is what you had in, like, The Walking Dead, where it was this kind of big feeling of, like, dramatic irony, and here it's just kind of the whims of the plot. Sure. But I agree with you that that they make Jeffrey as the Invisible Man menacing while still keeping him innocent. Um, I agree with that. And it is, I think, totally for code reasons, so that, as we said with Walking Dead, the people that he menaces can be people who deserve it. And I feel like the fact that, whether it's code reasons or whatever their reasons are, the fact that they're sidestepping or avoiding him actually doing violence and being active in that, it kind of undercuts the movie a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other parts of this, too, where it just felt like the people making the film were a little wary about going too far. Yeah. There's tense scenes, for example, when Helen and Frank realize that Jeffrey's gone mad, um, and it's at this dinner scene, and it's tense, but then it, it's resolved quite quickly. Like, they change mm-hmm. uh, what's happening, or something happens. It doesn't last long enough for me to really feel... Terror. Terror. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I, I completely 100% agree. I mean, I think that what you have here is a transformation of the Invisible Man from villain to almost anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Because when he's going around and doing things, I mean, he does a lot of violence in this movie. It's just not lethal in a lot of ways. And in some ways, you're kind of sometimes cheering for him. Sometimes you're cheering against him. It sort of shifts throughout the movie. But like, even when he first starts threatening Spears... It's played for laughs, right? Yeah. It's played as comedy, like, oh, this drunk guy, and like, oh, Vincent Price is really getting one over on him because he's invisible. Like, it's not played with the same kind of menacing black comedy that the Invisible Man had. It's, it's very straight, just slapstick. So I, I totally agree with you. I think that the toned-down nature of the film really makes it much less terrifying than the original. I do agree that some moments get close. Uh, to me, the standout scene is... Jeffrey and Richard and Spears in the room together, you know, and Spears, we see what Jeffrey's done to him because we don't really, we don't really see it 
at first. It's just sort of like fade to black before he sets up this thing. And then we come back and we see he's, you know, standing on the chair, hanging from the, from the neck. And, and so that really has that menace, you know, and then, you know, Richard kicks the chair out from under him and he, and he, and he dies and gets the light off and they're fighting in the dark and stuff. And that's, the closest things get, but even then, we keep cutting to the exterior of the house with these miners who have gathered around and they're hearing the noises and they just think that, like, Spears has gotten drunk and is stumbling around in his house again and they're, like, laughing about it and making jokes. So it, again, is sort of undercutting. So I, I completely agree that the movie is very consciously has that feeling of sort of, you know, pulling the leash back and keeping things sort of a little under control. Which is surprising coming from Universal because we just had... Son of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And it was dark. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if, you know, it, it comes back to the fact that horror went away because it crossed too many lines and went too far, and now it's come back, and we're trying to figure out where the new line is, and, you know, the code has been revised again, and this is just kind of what maybe they're trying to, you know, they're trying to figure out what postcode horror can be. Mm-hmm. You know, what side of tepid it's going to be on. And this airs a little bit more to the safe side of tepid. Yeah, I would agree with that. I do have to say, like you kind of mentioned this in the plot summary, but Inspector Samson is great. I really enjoyed seeing him deal with police officers that either were a little incompetent or just got outwitted by Jeffrey, um, and he, how he always just kind of had, like, a smile on his face, like he was enjoying the chase. Yeah, he, he he knows what's up. He's in charge of the situation. He has this good gag where, from the second he realizes Jeffrey's invisible, you know, he's one of these, like, cigar-chomping policemen, but he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to start smoking a cigar so that, like, if he's right near me one time, I'll immediately know about it. And that eventually pays off. Yeah, and that, like... You should see this movie just for that one clip of Samson blowing the cigar smoke and you see it go across Invisible Jeffrey's face just slightly. Like, I've never seen something done like that before. It was very cool to see. Yeah, the special effects in this movie are more or less just as good as the original and they do occasionally surpass the original in a few spots. That's one of them. There's another scene of Jeffrey moving through smoke that is similar. There's also a scene where they see him in the rain. Yeah. And um, those were all things that they mentioned in the original movie. Like, oh, you can't go out on a foggy day. You can't go out in the rain. But they never actually showed stuff like that. And they do in this movie. So it's there's a few moments where it kind of outdoes the original in that matter. But it's cool to see that the, the quality hasn't decreased any, which sometimes happens in sequels. Yeah, totally. The rest of the cast uh, are pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Cedric Hardwick is all right. Nan Gray is fine doing the thankless horror lady role. And uh, John Sutton is there as Frank Griffin. Um, no one's bad. Like, I, you know, no one's really bad in the cast. But the fact that really Vincent Price is the only one kind of going for it, and even then it's a toned-down version of even Vincent Price... I think adds to the overall toned-down feeling of the film. It has some really good moments in it, but it certainly doesn't get anywhere near the heights of the original Invisible Man. It feels like the TV version 
of the Invisible Man movie, if that makes any sense. Like, you know when you go from, like, a big movie franchise and they do a TV version and everything feels a little bit smaller and toned down? The direct-to-TV movie sequel? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're so many years before stuff like that, but it has that same kind of feeling where it's like, all right, you know, this is still clever, this is still well done, but we're just not on the same scale anymore. We've gone from, I don't know, the Avengers to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you know? (laughs) Sure. It does, yeah... I agree that this film is lukewarm, tepid. It, it it could have and I think should have gone a little further, but that's all right. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. Yeah, it was a fine enough movie. It was a fine enough time. Uh, so how fine is it? Let's talk about ranking. Sure. Last episode was The Return of Dr. X and was also a sequel. Mm-hmm. And with this sequel. I am, again, looking in this kind of area of between 34 to 38. So that's Dracula's Daughter, 1935 Scene of Prague, Mark of the Vampire, Dark Eyes of London, Return of Dr. X. Okay, that helps me out a lot because your range is entirely within mine. Okay. Um, I was looking from between 30 to 40, so below the Raven to below Mystery of the Wax Museum, above Devil Doll. So your range is is completely within that. So I think we can narrow it down maybe to just your range there. Sure. So you were looking 34 to 38? Basically, yeah. Um, I felt like this was not as good as Dracula's Daughter. As Mm -hmm. much of a mess as Dracula's Daughter is, the fact that, like, as we keep saying, it's talking about something. Yeah. Whereas this is just, like, a movie. Yeah, there's no... That's the other thing about this movie compared to the original. There's no greater thematic content here. It's just sort of a clever little murder mystery story sequel where it's like, okay, take a, this guy's on, take the fugitive and make Harrison Ford invisible. What do you get? That's really all that this movie is. A little bit. Yeah. Um, And crazy. Make Harrison Ford invisible and crazy. And Samson does care that Jeffrey didn't murder his brother. That's true. <laughs> um, so I, I felt like the highest I would put this is below Dracula's Daughter. And then kind of looking at Return of Dr. X, I felt like this was better than Return of Dr. X. Why, why did you think that? Is it just because Return of Dr. X is really goofy? Yeah, it's goofy. I, I was really just kind of going off of Humphrey Bogart and Vincent Price's performances. Sure, one of them one of them is a bit more comfortable with what he's doing than the other. Yeah. But I mean if we want to look at the larger whole, I could be convinced that this goes below Return of Doctor X. You know where I'm looking, Sarah, and I'm a little bit embarrassed about it. Sure. Below Dark Eyes of London, above Return of Doctor X. Why are you embarrassed? Because we've ranked three movies in a row now, like right Basically in the same spot on the list. (laughs) Oh yeah, this is definitely worse than Mark of the Vampire, but better than Mystery at the Wax Museum. Sure. So it's just a little weird that we've had like a very consistent string of middle of the road quality movies. Yeah, a little middle of the list. Yeah, I would be fine with here, but I'm curious about why you feel Dark Eyes of London is a better movie than this one. Really, it's just because Dark Eyes of London goes for it in the way that this movie doesn't. Mm-hmm. Dark Eyes of London throws people off of buildings and has autopsies and, like, murders people on camera and stuff. 
Okay. That's really what it is. Like, Dark Eyes of London possesses the menace that this movie is lacking in. And why do you feel it should go above Return of Dr. X? Because, honestly, if we are looking at the whole thing, I feel like maybe it could go below. Yeah, um, that's true. I just think that more care and attention was put towards the making of Invisible Man Returns. Like, the script of this movie is clearly written by, like, intelligent people who have put (laughs) some care into what they're writing and how the story works. Um, You know, even if the structure sort of is a bit weird at the start because you're just thrown right into the middle of things, like, this movie does a good job of being a sequel to The Invisible Man, you know, and following the rules of that movie and not just bringing Jack Griffin back to life for no reason. Um, it It's clever with what it does, uh, whereas Return of Dr. X is kind of a mystery that doesn't play by the rules a lot because it just makes shit up whenever it feels like it <laughs> to have the plot work in that moment. It's it's a little bit sloppier than this movie. As much as I prefer that kind of Warner Brothers look of urban, art deco kind of stuff, whereas this is more of that Universal Studios, vaguely European, kind of in the past, maybe countryside kind of atmosphere. Yeah. I, I prefer the atmosphere of the Warner Brothers movie, but this is a better made movie. More more care and attention was put in towards this movie. Yeah, I think even just looking at the special effects. Yeah. Side note, talking about, like, vaguely European. Mm. Remember in Invisible Man where we felt like James Whale and everyone making the movie was kind of poking fun at themselves for being British? Yeah. Um, I think part of the reason why I like Samson so much is it doesn't do that. Sure. It's confident police. No one's being like, I'm a British guy. It's all just like, you know, there's visual gags, but there's no making fun of someone. Okay. I mean, there's still a few, like, bumbling British Bobby-type characters in this movie. But, but it's not so overdone. No, I it's guess. not It's not to the same extent. I mean, it's toned down the same way that the horror is toned down. Yeah. Which may be a good or bad thing, depending on your mileage. <laughs> I just like Samson because I like competent characters. Sure. Okay, so are we decided? Yeah. All right, so coming in at number 38... Below The Dark Eyes of London and above The Return of Dr. X is The Invisible Man Returns from 1940, directed by Joe May. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes, and you can also find an appeals box if you feel like we should reconsider where we've ranked either this or any other film. You can also reach us over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or feel free to talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can find us wherever fine podcasts are found through our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, there are a few ways you can do that. You can rate or review the show if the podcasting software of your choice allows you to do so. You can also just tell people about the show if you know anyone, whether in real life or online, who will enjoy a show like this, let them know about us. Uh, We love to see our audience grow. Another way that you can help the show out is um, if you would like to ensure that the battlements of Castle Scream scene remain strong and 
unbroken uh, for centuries to come, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month by going to patreon.com slash podcast. Patrons at higher levels, such as the $5 and $10 levels, receive weekly bonus audio or monthly horror short fiction, and if we hit our first Patreon goal, we'll start doing bonus episodes of the show covering horror-adjacent movies, like maybe we'd take a look at The Invisible Woman, the slapstick <laughs> entry into this franchise. Seeing this film, it kind of makes sense why the next move is comedy. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Just to, They're getting so tepid with this. Let's try putting our feet in a different lake, as it were. Yeah, it's because, you know, if you think about what can you do with an invisible person, it's either really horrific or, like, jokey pranks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what are we watching next week, Ben? Uh, we are sticking with Universal Pictures. Uh, heck, we're even sticking with the same writer, Kurt Siedmak. Uh, we are taking a look at Black Friday, starring Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi. It'll be a scream of a deal here on Scream Scene for Black Friday. I don't think that was a thing back then. <laughs> for sure, whatever. Black Friday, be there or be square. <laughs> or be scared. Be there or be scared. Ah, that would have been... See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.